You're listening to Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM. My guest this week is Mr. Nate Powell. Nate's latest book is Silence of Our Friends. Um, actually, I guess that's not out till January. Um, Any Empire from the fine folks at Top Shelf, as well as some older books, including Sounds of Your Name from Microcosm and um, Swallow Me Whole, also from Top Shelf. Uh, Swallow Me Whole got a whole heap of praise and I think uh, Any Empire um, kind of follows what you've been doing with Swallow Me Whole. And, uh, yeah, it's a pretty large amount of output for Swallow Me Whole coming out not too long ago. Oh, definitely. I uh, Basically, once Swallow Me Whole came out, um, the authors of Silence of Our Friends approached me about drawing their book for hire, and, uh, you know, a bunch of things lined up where Swallow Me Whole began to pick up a little bit of steam. I picked up this job for Silence of Our Friends, and I realized that I had the opportunity to quit my job and do comics full-time. Uh, but that, you know, the condition of being fortunate enough to do that came with the requirement that I had to bust way more ass than I've busted in my life. <laughs> so uh, my output start, had to sort of double at first and then triple like in 2010 I wound up drawing 500 finished pages which I didn't I didn't know it was possible to do so it's nice to know it can be done uh, I made a plan to you know not have to do that again and then I had to just, just throw that out the window again so uh, it's nice knowing that I can handle the output but uh, you know it's certainly not a joy to crank out three pages a day <laughs> Uh, one friend, um, he, he, he can be a little slow in his pages. One of the reasons he says is he doesn't want to hate comics. Oh, yeah. If he pushes himself too hard. How do you feel like, you, you know, 500 plus pages in a year is a pretty ridiculous amount. Um, it's a lot. How is your relationship with the work after being so, you know, headfirst? Well, uh, looking back on it, it feels great because, uh, for one, my my daily and weekly pace was high enough that I really didn't get much of a chance to look at things or get too precious with them once they were drawn. You know, I'd spend a lot of, I'd pay a lot of attention to them in the process of making the pages, and once they were scanned and sent off, I would really, I'd look at them again in the editing and correction phase. Uh, but you didn't really have a lot of time to really sweat 
too much about the pages. So it's nice to sort of return to them almost with fresh eyes. Um, but uh, as far as surviving that clip of productivity, uh, it's just uh, really made it necessary to find what works as far as different ways of keeping your discipline, but most importantly, ways of tricking yourself into uh, staying on task. Because I mean, I I guess when I draw, when I'm actually sitting down drawing, I draw pretty quickly. I I can probably ink a page in two and a half or three hours, but usually about every 15 minutes I want to get up for some reason or my ink needs to dry and uh, if I'm not careful especially working out of my house you know it's easy to just waste an hour on the internet or make a very nice lunch for yourself and take the dog for a walk and do all this stuff so uh, a lot of it is learning little tricks that will allow you to step away from the table for a minute or two minutes and then get right back to it before you realize that you'd rather be doing something else or that you know you want to be distracted. I know some people use a program to say shut the internet off. Ooh. I don't know. It's a nice touch. I, I recently just got an iPhone, and at first I was... I've been rocking like a 2004 cell phone for years and years, um, but I got this iPhone for free, and at first I was like, well, I guess it's about to happen, you know, like the big, about to join the rest of the world and just have all this stuff around me all the time, but it's actually made my work life way better because since I get email to my phone, uh, basically I can be drawing and look at it quickly but since I don't have to go to my computer, then I don't check like every single thing on the internet that's happened in the last 20 minutes. And uh, it's actually made my workday a little bit shorter just by virtue of being able to stay at the table that much longer. Now, working on two books at the same time, um, how do you arrange that in your brain? Well, um, when I was doing Any Empire and Silence of Our Friends at the same time, I, I knew that that would be happening. Um, and so sort of preemptively, I tried to separate the two uh, stylistically. So I decided Any Empire was going to stay black and white line art. And uh, the Silence of Our Friends uh, is essentially a period piece, and it takes place in early 1968. Um, so that, coupled with the fact that I didn't write it, and some other factors, I decided to go ahead and do sort of a simplified line work with a more involved gray watercolor wash over everything. Uh, I also decided to draw them at different sizes. Uh, I knew that Any Empire was going to be a longer book, but because the whole thing was just out of my brain, I knew that I could sort of push through it more quickly because I, I had less, I guess, calculated decisions to make. Yeah, yeah. Less, fewer restrictions. So I drew Any Empire at 13 inches, and I drew Silence of Our Friends at 16 inches. Um, so basically the way this happened is once it was inking time, every morning I needed to draw one Silence of Our Friends page. And then in the afternoon I needed to draw more or less two Any Empire pages, and that was like a six-day-a-week operation. Um, and look, you know, looking back at or looking forward to the next day, it seems really daunting. But when you get up and you realize, you know, you have this one page to do, and then once that's done, you know, you can step away for lunch, and then you just get to, you know, go to town on your own book for two pages, and then you're done. Uh, I feel like piecemealing the operation, as well as making the two books as different as possible, really helped. Were there any cartoonists that you kind of had looked at that had done similar routines like I know Dave Sim kind of had the page a day thing um, well yeah I, in general yeah I did definitely look back at a lot of uh, or I, I didn't look back at but I thought a lot of some of my old you know whether it was mainstream heroes or teachers of mine from SVA uh, but I, I kind of looked to the inspiration of the Marvel DC be able to draw a page a day model mm -hmm. um and uh, at a certain point, I wound up reading or rereading the the Jack Kirby book that Mark Evanier did, which is just a, a beautiful piece of work. But, but getting to revisit that man's ridiculous output and just like the level of conviction he had about it, uh, that helped 
that helped my workload seem like less big of a deal, you know? Yeah. If, if it's the work that you have in front of you, you just get it done. And uh, in general, it wasn't that big of a headache. Um, and it sort of helped to realize that, you know, I'm still just sitting in here listening to records all day and drawing, so there's really no reason to complain <laughs> about any of it. It's a good life. Oh, yeah. It's a good life. Well, especially, like, um, I know, I think you went to SVA. Did you go the same time as Farrell? Yeah. yeah. We, were, we were both roughly class of 99, class of 2000. Because he t- talked a lot about, like, Walt Simonson there, and I know uh, Walt Simonson especially, like, pretty impressive output, especially during his Thor run of just having so much Oh, definitely. Great stuff constantly coming out. Um, so I can see kind of that really sticking through. Um, any other kind of cartoonists that you may have had of his, as instructors there? Oh, yeah, I had some good ones. Actually, uh, Walt Simonson came and did some guest lectures uh, in a few of my classes, but he and Bill Sienkiewicz had just left when I started at SBA. Oh, bummer. However, I did have the great Ben Cachor. Uh, he was my Friday, I had a Friday afternoon class with him with about seven or eight other people. And, uh, you know, a couple of those folks dropped out halfway through because it was on the Friday afternoon. This is very small, very focused, very different class. Um, also, Klaus Jansen was my teacher. Uh, just a wealth of information in that class. Um, Keith Mayerson is a great dude. Carmine Infantino I had for a couple of years. Uh, and uh, that was that was exciting just every single week because he was of a, an entirely different generation of cartoonist. And part of him really came across more like uh, you know, more like an artisan. He was really taking comics from a very utilitarian standpoint. But once you really got in there and he was critiquing your stuff and helping you out and drawing over your drawings, uh, you really started seeing him in this other light where underneath uh, his very gruff exterior that he was a true master of the form. Uh, it was just an awesome class to go to a couple times a week. Um, Yes, I had, I had some really good folks work that I was working with. Um, hearing you mention the catcher, I can see that kind of that wash that he did, kind of melting a little bit into the sounds of our friends. Oh yeah, he was one of the people I looked at a lot. Um, I've always been a fan of sort of flattened, simplified color washes and, and gray tones, but. Uh, Basically, I've never picked up the Photoshop skills to do a nice, flat application of color. So once, before I started using watercolor and stuff, I would do a lot of my color work with gouache uh, directly over the pencils. Then I'd ink over the, over the gouache, and it, it was flat and rich. It was everything I wanted out of color. But uh, it made it so that I had to paint directly over all the pencils and I was basically inking blindly. Like the cover of Swami Hole and the cover of Sounds of Your Name are both like that. Um, so when I was trying to figure out what my approach was, yeah, I looked a lot at Ben Catcher. Um, also Glenn Barr. Oh, yeah. With, called Brooklyn Dreams, which was a kind of obscure Paradox Press book from the 90s. That yeah. A lot. Yeah, and he um, did that Batman jazz book too, right? Yes, yes. Um, so I looked at his stuff, and Vanessa Davis's work, I also wound up looking at a lot. Eleanor Davis, mm-hmm. uh, both of them, uh, just looking at their watercolor applications. Jeepy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I definitely looked around as much as I could. Jeepy's a great one. I, uh, I, I, I'm so obsessed with his comics. <laughs> Please put out more, Jeepy, or at least someone translate more. Oh, indeed. Indeed. Well, let's jump into Sounds of Our Friends. Um, the kind of the premise is a look at, I guess, a period of time in civil rights. It was in Texas? Yes. It's in a, it's in Houston, Texas. In Houston. There we go. Right in the back there. Two families, one black, one white, find common ground in the very conflict that threatens to pull them apart. Um it, I, I found it interesting where, I mean, you were doing the story from a script pretty much, right? Or Yes. Uh, essentially, you know, it went through a couple of stages of, of editing after we decided to work together on the book. 
But uh, yeah, more or less, I received a finished script that was uh, that was written closer to movie screenplay style. There wasn't a lot of directorial language, but uh, it was formatted in a very a very finished, tightened way, which I appreciated a lot. Uh, that's another thing that made it really easy to work together on both books was the fact that uh, my brain was just processing the information for Silence of Our Friends in a very different way. It's uh, Did they choose you specifically because of your kind of comfortability with the age range of the characters that you're working with, or was there something specific? Um, well, the way it came about was, uh, I think it was maybe just a week after Swallow Hole came out or something, uh, I just got a call from Jim Dimonakos when I was going to work one day, and uh, we had never met in person or anything, and uh, he just he basically said he had a book idea that he was that he had finished writing with somebody, and he was interested in me drawing the whole graphic novel. And at the time, I had no expectations of ever being able to do comics full time. So, uh, you know, more or less, I I just wasn't sure if I had the time to put into drawing someone else's book. Um, and uh, I, I mean, I assume that more than the content of my stories, it, it just had to do with my, my style, I guess. So uh, he's like, well, okay, maybe you can't, maybe you can, maybe you can't draw the book. Uh, could you draw some demo illustrations so that we can sort of pitch the book around? And I was like, yeah, sure. So I drew uh, half a dozen of these illustrations. He's like, oh, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. Uh, by the way, you're definitely drawing this book. We just really want you to draw it. So, you know, just mull it over, and once you decide you're going to do it, just let us know. Uh, and then, uh, basically, that's when things started lining up, and I realized that maybe I should just try to have the time to do it. Um, but, yeah, I think it had, it had more to do with uh, strictly with visual style than content or subject matter in my own books. Tell me about... Um balancing or keeping interest or how this figures into because I mean you you very you have your own voice in your comics um, and it you know your comics and with your art and how does working on a project with other folks like a collaboration like this work in maintaining that sense of voice well um, for the silence of our friends it was not difficult because the primary author, Mark Long, I mean, he's, he's 20 years older than I am, but uh, it's a semi-autobiographical tale, and a lot of it has to do with him growing up um, in a, you know, a different era of the Cold War period of American history, but coming from a very similar place geographically and culturally. Um, you know, I grew up in Arkansas, Alabama, Mississippi. My family's all from Mississippi. So jumping into the story, a lot of our interests and personalities as kids were similar. The cultural environment was very similar. I already knew what I was getting into, so I felt like my voice, in a lot of ways, was being represented through through Mark. It also turns out that you know we both grew up within uh, the cultural context of, of punk rock. He grew up as a 1970s Texas punk, uh, and so we didn't realize that until we'd begun working together. But uh, a lot of these little tangents started clicking, and uh, I really didn't feel like uh, there was much concern with uh, preservation of my own voice as an artist. While I was drawing it and work, you know, working through kinks or noticing, you know, any any holes that might exist in the story or any sort of concerns. Uh, it was also really nice just because uh, both authors and the editor were really open to my input, whether it was just aesthetic or whether it was a political or cultural concern, um, especially when you're dealing with, uh, you know, institutionalized racism and hate crimes and um, being, you know, being sensitive about these issues, but also being, being true to both subjective and objective history. Um, I never really felt like I was stepping out of turn by interjecting my personal or political or editorial opinion. So there, there was a lot of good and in-depth discussion about stuff as, as the pages were, were rolling in. Um, and I very much felt like my contributions were, you know, were taken 
with a a sense of authorship and not just you know being hired for for the job of drawing the book. There's something interesting where you guys are able to kind of the the analytical role of the book um, and the point of view. And I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to word this. It was something kind of like not taking issue with, but kind of interested with is kind of realizing that this is really a bunch of white guys talking about um, civil rights mm -hmm. and the South and you don't pretend to be more than that I guess like yeah and that was one of my primary concerns going into the book um, and I feel like it would have to be um, so when we were just in the groundwork stages of working together uh, it was very clear that you know Mark was aware of that too and uh, you know I think that yeah, there's certainly an issue. There's an issue of yeah, of, of privilege and co-opting. Yeah, co-opting and the just simply the use of one's voice, you know, by taking this tale, whether or not it is autobiographical, and putting it, putting it to print. But I feel that uh, yeah, there's just a lot of constant discussion to make sure that, you know, like uh, certain elements in the book that were necessary because they happened or that were chosen to be included because they happened. Uh, you know, occasionally, uh, I guess I, w I was the more cautioned voice while drawing it. There, there were certain elements that were, uh, that were very uncomfortable to depict, and so I would sort of like shoot an email to everyone, and we'd have a discussion about whether or not it was really necessary to include certain, certain bits. You know, uh, at a certain point, there was... We, we had reached a stage where I felt like the N-word had been used just enough times, and using it more than that was crossing... It wasn't crossing a line of appropriateness, it was just wholly unnecessary. So, yeah. a lot of discussion about uh, basically making an autobiographical tale that is still primarily a story, it's a narrative. And so, I feel like we all, we all learned a lot along the way about... Uh, when trying to tell something that is true and that is powerful, you know, the difference between accuracy and truth. And so uh, uh, I guess one, one scene which uh, sticks out in my mind a lot, especially when speaking of, like, the skin privilege of, of our authorship and everything and having personal, you know, personal experiences with this particular breed of Southern racism around us growing up was uh, there's a scene in the book where... Uh, Jack Long is the father figure of the white suburban family in the book. His old army buddy uh, comes to visit unannounced and sort of wrecks the set for everybody that night and basically causes a bunch of trouble and gets kicked out of the house and everything. Uh, and a lot of it focuses around how he has to crash at the house, that he's making everyone uncomfortable, and he starts breaking out some, you know, more, more monstrous uh, sort mm -hmm. of racial epithets and, and jokes that just aren't cool for this family. But uh, there is, basically, there's a, a shot where he's trying to he's trying to egg on young Mark Long into making some stereotypical uh, racist you know, caricatures that are, that are physical. Uh, basically doing racist physical comedy. And uh, basically, I was supposed to draw this really horrid depiction of this white racist caricature of a stereotypical blackface from mid-20th century. Um, I tried drawing it originally in a way that didn't directly depict it, and the reason why was because I actually grew up being very aware of this, uh, of this face that racist white people would do and the fact that they thought it was funny and there was just, you know, there was not a second thought about it. Um, but I was so close to it and I had grown up so close to it that, uh, you know, though I was very quickly sort of horrified by it growing up, I just assumed that this is something that Americans everywhere were very familiar with and I felt like depicting it directly was just unnecessary and it wasn't until sort of asking various friends, especially friends who are not Southerners or ex-Southerners, about their experiences with it, um, I realized that it was something that was 
geographically and culturally a lot more specific than I thought it was. So after the back and forth, I kind of went back in and I had to, I had to go in and do the dirty work. Uh, and you know, I probably, I probably took multiple showers after I drew that panel again. Uh, so there, there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of gross shit that I had to draw in the book. Uh, but a lot of it was, you know, basically just the fact that this happened. Yeah. And not only did it happen in the story and not only did it happen to the author, but it's, the fact that I was drawing, I was basically, you know, digging up uh, just parts from my past growing up in Alabama or Arkansas or Mississippi uh, that, you know, I I had reckoned with and I didn't think I would have to dig up again. So, yeah, it was, drawing the book was a very powerful experience and very personal in that way. I think it's great that you're using the term privilege. Um and it's something kind of that I feel like contextually a lot of folks don't really kind of get what you mean. Um, mm -hmm. Do you want to kind of oh, sure. expand on that? Yeah, I mean, more or less, you know, privilege, you know, can be, can be race privilege or it can be gender, it can be economics or whatever. But in general, I think that privilege is the, privilege is the, I feel like it's the vehicle behind the power of inequality uh, that's sort of, you know, like you can it's the vehicle that's implemented by good people everywhere that uh, people who don't have to worry about X happening to them in their lives. Like privilege is the thing that makes it you know, like if you have the privilege of not having to worry about where your dinner is coming from then you're going to be a little bit a little bit oblivious or less sensitive to all the ways in which, uh, you know, poverty and hunger and social conditions affect people who have to think about where their next meal is coming from. You know, as far as race privilege is concerned, um, you know, being, being a white American comes with a certain set of assumptions that makes it, generally speaking, uh, easier to forget exactly how historically and culturally speaking, uh, you just luck out with shit, and uh, you can. The fact that you can take certain things for granted, or the fact that you can go without realizing you have a certain level of privilege, is privilege. So uh, there's certainly a good degree of that, especially because half of the characters in Silence of Our Friends are, uh, you know, are black radicals and black progressives, and it's a story about social justice, but it's also a story about the double-sided friendship between two well-meaning two well-meaning men, one white and one black, uh, who ultimately use each other's friendship uh, against each other while fighting on the same side for an issue they both believe in. Um, so a lot of times, you know, there would be the question or the doubt about yeah, the appropriateness of even using our voices in such a way to tell this kind of tale um, but the thing that that uh, that really I, I felt made the story worth telling was we kept returning to the issue that uh, you know for all the ugly parts in it and for all the parts that uh, that you know that seemed like they were uh, you know like they were written to be in a story uh, the fact that these things really happened and the fact that you know the person you know, who they happened to and around when he was a little kid was here to tell the tale. So it was just an awareness of the fact that, um, you know, an author can't see all sides of the story. And uh, I guess the fact that Mark Long was a kid when this happened, and he was sort of fictionalizing his own experiences around this. He basically wasn't trying to speak for characters or for people who were not himself within the book. And I feel like that helped sort of level the field a little bit too. Mm -hmm. Oh, baby, yeah. Baby, wanna come home. I 
got to get home to you. Days and nights, feel it's whole blue, baby. Oh, Lord, I don't, don't know what I'm gonna do. Just to remind folks, I am chatting with Nate Powell, his latest books. Uh, we've just been discussing uh, Science of Our Friends, and uh, he also has Eddie Empire out from the fine folks at Top Shelf. Um, I feel like this is a good time to segue into Eddie Empire. Um, I mean, both of them you ha have a political identity within them, and they do share a kind of political identity, I think, in some ways of this obs observance, maybe? Don't know if okay. I have the words yeah. I want to use. <laughs> I'm with you. Um, any empire, you're saying, earlier you mentioning how you were working on it, kind of plowing through it. Um, was it pretty unstructured from the beginning? Did you kind of just work on the story while going through, or do you have like a really good idea of what you wanted to do? Oh, I had a very, very clear idea of what I wanted to do. However, Any Empire changed a whole lot over the process of rewriting it and re restructuring it for about two years before I actually sat down, you know, for the inks. Basically, the idea for Any Empire happened as I was finishing up work on Swallow Me Whole. Um, and it was a much shorter uh, non-fiction, very smarmy political rant that I, in tone was a lot more similar to um, Kim Dahl's voice in Monsters and in the Welcome to the Dollhouse collection. Uh, and basically, once AKA I AKA Gabby Schultz. Yes, AKA Gabby Schultz. Uh, as I was working through all of that, uh, I became less and less interested in telling uh, autobiographical tales, but uh, gradually a, a narrative began to really form from it. So uh, it just took a while. Uh, you know, the, the intent was very clear, and once the story emerged, it was very clear. Um, but basically, I went through five or six different phases of revision back and forth with Chris Staros, who is an exceptional editor, very thoughtful and insightful dude. Uh, so basically, you know, uh, there'd be a lot of work, we'd send off a draft, and then we'd have a couple of really long phone conversations about it, and, uh, you know, 
I'd move back through the next stage, and that happened for about a year or so. Um, and I probably wound up drawing 500 pages total for the book and threw 200 of them out or used them to replace other pages. Um, but yes, the, in, the intent, the subject matter, and the narrative were always very clear, and new elements would emerge you know, every couple of months, but as soon as they emerge, they it's almost like they crystallize themselves in the book as if they had been there all along. Uh, and so it's very satisfying just to sort of go through the process of, uh, of trusting when a new element needed to be introduced uh, and finding ways for everything to weave itself together nicely. I like that you just mentioned uh, Ken Gabby's uh, Monsters uh, book. Um, because I do feel like, well, he, the, the, they both share this vague autobiography. Um, yours is a lot vaguer than than Ken's mm -hmm. um, or Gabby's. Just use one name, Gabby. Come oh, uh, on, <laughs> come on. Um, tell me about that that really vagueness of of identity within any empire. Certainly. Um, okay, so as I was saying, you know. The roots of any empire were a much shorter autobiographical tale uh, that really just featured a character of myself as an adult moving through all this stuff, basically moving through these issues and moving through these rants. Um, as the narrative emerged, uh, you know, I grew up moving around a lot until I was about 10 years old. I grew up in a military family. I grew up as a G.I. Joe kid in the Reagan era. And, uh, you know, it hit me at a certain point that all these things that I wanted to say had been, you know, seeds of questions and doubts. And a lot of these issues had really come up a lot, you know, from the time I was six years old or so. Um, and, you know, the more I became disinterested in doing an autobiographical work, um, the more it became apparent that these real-life situations and incidents really strongly applied to what I really wanted to say in the book. So uh, the approach I developed for any empire was that a lot of what was happening was based on situations that really happened in my life or around me, um, but I was, I was never going to treat the character, the main character that's basically me. I was never going to treat him like he was me. Uh, at the same time, I didn't really feel like it was a big deal as far as whether or not um, I was personally depicting these as fictional or non-fictional. Um, and, you know, I didn't want the character's name to be my name. But I didn't feel like it was that important to make it something completely different or to change that much about the character's environment or appearance. So basically, I just used my middle name, which is Lee, and I just didn't worry about it anymore. I didn't feel like it was important. And there, there's, a, there's an emerging romantic element that happens uh, in the second half of the book. And uh, while writing it in and developing it, a lot of it is actually based... A lot of it in the adult stage is based on the way that my my wife and I sort of met and clicked, uh, but uh, you know I, I fictionalized it and had us go to elementary school together back in the 1980s, which in no way happened. Um, but obviously, I have a strong emotional attachment to the real person behind this character, uh, and yet as I was writing in this romantic element that I thought was very natural for the book. Uh, it just kept hitting me that I really didn't feel like the romantic element was as important as romantic relationships often are when they emerge in graphic novels of, mm -hmm. of this kind. And so uh, I feel like it's a little more compressed, the romantic side, than people might expect it to be. And in fact, when doing drafts back and forth and edits with Chris Staros, you know, he would talk about how he wanted, you know, he'd be like, man, I just kind of want to see a little bit more of this unfolding of your relationship or see what happens in the in-between times. Um, and it was sort of the first time I've approached a relationship situation in a way where, you know, I too wanted to see more in the book, but I didn't, I just didn't feel like it was important for the survival of the story. 
Um, so there were there were a couple of different angles within the book that I just uh, I knew that there was more to be said, and I I wanted there to be more. I desired more, but uh, ultimately I felt like they weren't serving the story. Um, well, it's interesting because I mean at that point it's also the story doesn't become about them as well. What's that? The story is no longer about them. That's true. Yes. Yeah, and it's certainly not about the story is certainly not about these two main characters falling in love, although they do fall in love. Uh, and uh, you know, earlier on in the book, a lot of it takes place you know around the third or fourth grade level for these kids in the eighties, and uh, it's interesting because uh, uh, there, there's kind of a, a crew of three or four kids who are hanging out. Some of them are you know super twisted. Some are super sensitive. Some are way too malleable. Uh, some are, you know, a little too insightful and freaked out. Um, but uh, it's weird because, you know, you develop these really strong relationships, you think, to your friends when you're eight or nine. And moving away feels horrible because you're never going to see them again. But then basically a month later, you forget about them. Uh, you know, and or you wind up going to a different school as them, and it sucks for a couple of weeks, and then everything is totally fine. Um, and so it'd be interesting because you know there is there's continuity throughout the book and throughout these characters' lifetimes of these intersections where the characters wind up together again. But the the fact remains, and the thing that I thought was important was how tenuous so many relationships in our lives are. But specifically, you know, as you're younger, everything just feels apocalyptic uh, because you really have nothing. You don't have any real experiences to temper your feelings with or your perspective. So, uh, you know, you're not necessarily super close friends with anybody when you're that young, although you certainly feel like you are. The cover of the book, um, it's very evoking, uh, especially in this period now of situations of child soldiers, um, especially say in Africa yes. and such. Um, but the book isn't about that. How do you feel like, what was the decision to use such a provocative image? Well, um, basically, um, in my real life as a kid, as this G.I. Joe kid who would spend most of his time dredging through swamps and ditches in Alabama. Um, not only, you know, was this something I would do all the time, and I would dress in full, full head-to-toe camouflage, including face paint, and drag <laughs> around, you know, fake wooden and metal guns and knives everywhere I went. Um, but a lot of it was uh, just respecting, I guess respecting that when I was a kid doing this, I was very, very serious about it. And uh, I wasn't, you know, kids aren't exactly playing, and they're not exactly fantasizing. They're immersing themselves in in their play as a means of like learning who they are. Um, and you know, I have some photographs of posing, you know, that are kind of kind of freaky as far as like they're just kids playing army. But it'll be one of my best friends and I posing in full head to toe camouflage with these you know assault rifles as a kid and pointing them at the camera but if you just look into our eyes you know there's just there's nothing sarcastic about us you're not aware that it's funny that we're that we're nine-year-olds and that we're doing it or as you're saying the fact that there are you know we're completely oblivious to the fact there are real nine-year-olds with uh, with real assault rifles who are freedom fighters in their own countries because they have to be because um, they need to be. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's certainly a transgressive image, and uh, there are levels of it that are that are uncomfortable. Uh, and a lot of it is just the fact that, at least I can only speak for myself, but I feel like it it invokes a lot of the discomfort and a lot of the cognitive dissonance that that accompanies looking back at growing up as you know a relatively privileged. Ameri you know, like white American child in the Reagan era, and uh, being able to have, you know, an experience like that, an image like that, be wrapped up strictly in this very intense, f 
fantasy play. Now, as uh, before we got to actually start the interview, we're talking about um, you're very quickly going to become a father. Um, yes. In, in in a matter of days. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, looking at this work and kind of processing your childhood, uh, how is this kind of all working with kind of looking at the future? Um. Well. Or is this way too personal? <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's personal, right? But I mean, I I know that I young characters and the the notion of passing youth or analyzing, you know, passing youth, analyzing maturing and maturity, it comes up a lot in my books, but I I never really think of any of my stories as being about the kids. Uh, in the Empire, you know, two-thirds of it takes place when these kids are in elementary school, but I never ever think of it as being about these kids, about these characters that are kids. Um, I'm excited to be a dad for you know a hundred reasons, but one of those reasons is that uh, I feel like what will emerge, you know, the way I begin to see the world anew and maybe see the world again is going to change the way that I want to tell stories about certain things and change, you know, what I want, what I want to communicate and who I want to communicate to. Um, but. Looking at the at the comics I've done, I actually don't really feel like any of these really apply to that question yet, and that's the exciting thing to me. You know, I'm excited for my kids to be 13 or 14 or whatever, and decide to you know if they want to to jump into my books and and see what my books are like or were like at that phase. But I feel like. Uh, my perspective on the world and my interest in in telling stories and how I want to tell them is going to change uh, in the next few years. And so I'm just very excited that I really don't know what that's going to entail. But yeah, the, the work I've done so far, I don't necessarily think about it as applying to young people at all, which sounds ridiculous because it's full of young people. Um. Part of growing up in the Reagan era is the um, that kind of political consciousness that you've developed over time. How do you look at today with what's going on, and what kind of feelings is that evoking, especially when we're looking at, um, from my own point of view, and I'll probably get criticized for this, is a like highly militarized America. Oh yeah. Um, it's really been blowing my mind watching the responses to the Occupy movements and mm -hmm. just how um, it looks more and more like something out of V for Vendetta. Oh, it does. Yeah, I. Well, I was talking to Rachel, uh, my wife, about this uh, in the last couple of days. Um, you know, it's weird. Okay, you know, growing up as this, uh, you know, glorified militarized kid until you're like 10 and you get uninterested in that. Um, but basically when I was 13 or 14, you know, getting, getting into punk and then through that discovering a lot more about progressive and radical politics. Um, but, you know, being then a way overconfident, self-righteous, early, mid-20-something. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, basically, you know, hitting a point uh, that is still just it. I feel just as far to the left, politically speaking, but uh, that really sees all the ways that the 90s did a lot of us wrong, uh, especially on the far left. Um, and, uh, you know, coming, coming to a, a stage where, you know, obviously things were shitty, very shitty, in the Reagan and Bush eras, in the Clinton era, and, of course, in Bush, too. Um, they're really reconciling all of that, and the utter shock in in these last couple of years at you know like I guess it's almost like I'm I'm just in utter disbelief that all the things that I sort of passed off as my younger self being too paranoid about certain po political possibilities and uh, being way too anthemic about certain certain issues. I feel like uh, I feel like the the right has really just kicked it up a notch in ways that I never would have expected to happen. I feel like things have strangely become 
much more of a caricature of yeah, a right-wing, militarized, uh, you know, neocon, authoritarian, evangelical state than they ever were in the Bush two era, mm-hmm. or or in the Reagan era, or in Bush one, um, and uh, it's just, you know, it's almost comical except that it's not funny at all. Uh, I feel like for for those of us in the states who who voted for Obama in two thousand eight and people who were of the progressive left and radical left who were like, okay, finally an election that actually matters. I'll vote, you know, hopefully he'll win. And then when he actually did win, we there was this really weird feeling inside us. We're like, what is this feeling? Uh, it's that... Shit just got real. <laughs> it's what, what was so strange was like, speaking for myself, I didn't trust my own feelings because I was actually excited uh, that it seemed like someone wasn't uh, you know, somebody wasn't a bastard who was president. Who a- someone who actually wasn't a bastard, and uh, you're like, what is this? I've just I've never even had this feeling that somebody might be all right or even kind of cool, and uh, and I, in ways, it's almost like Nietzsche's The Case of Wagner. I'm being that's extreme, so don't just take that with a grain of salt. Where he's just he gets hurt by the discovery that Richard Wagner, the composer, was just this really messed up far right anti-Semitic dude, and that's an extreme example. So you know I'm not not saying that, but you know you decide to trust yourself and, and trust that you can actually feel good about who the president is, uh, and then you know President Obama wound up being just just another president man <laughs> and so it's this you can just feel the floor collapsing under you where you actually went out on a limb and really felt like things could in fact get less whack in our in our country um, and uh, I don't know it's 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 kind of hard to feel like it's possible to dig out of this hole <laughs> that we've dug for ourselves especially with with all this really really scary far-right authoritarian evangelical business happening it it's it really blows my mind watching the republican debates and watching these candidates and just like where did they come from like what for real reality are they coming from it's oh what's one thing that is you know i guess maybe this comes with developing a little bit more tempered sense of politics uh, you know coming out of my way to beat you over the head with it early 20s um, but one important realization was just that uh, how closely idealism is tied into political and ideological conservatism whether you're talking about the far left or the far right but uh, specifically how the right is so deeply rooted in ideology. And by that, I mean making decisions and taking stances on things because it's the right thing to do. And I'm not even saying that it's not the right thing to do, ideologically speaking. That doesn't matter for, the, for this discussion here. But, uh, yeah, and what you're saying, like, where do these people come from? It's amazing that every single time with the new right, uh, ideology, you know, like because because the world would hypothetically be a better place if everyone did the right thing, trumps an assessment of reality every time. And so there's never really any assessment of what's happening, like quote on the ground in the world, uh, and really rolling with rolling with a messy, imperfect world of people who can't stand each other and trying to make things work. Uh, it's just so deeply intertwined in this inflexible ideology. Uh, to me, that's the scariest thing. Have fun. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you for joining me today, Nate. Oh, of um, course. I really appreciate it. Uh, just a reminder, folks, the latest books are Any Empire, The Silence of Our Friends, uh, Sounds of Your Name, as well as Swallow Me Whole. And you have another book coming out in the spring. Yeah, it's called The Year of the Beasts, and it's written by Cecil Castellucci. 
who uh, folks might recognize from uh, the Plain Janes with our good friend Jim Rugg, as well as I'm trying to remember what else she'd done. Well, she's also uh, she does a ton of uh, young adult novels. Like she just released a new one called I think the first day on earth or the first boy on earth um yeah so she she has a whole bunch of different things under her belt awesome well i look forward to it and i hope uh you take this uh time to rest your drawing hand for a little while oh i'll try i'll try <laughs> can't be for too long though awesome thanks nate yeah thanks a lot robin <laughs>